one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day as the nation refocuses in light of the message that the people of this country assent with their very strong turnouts uh, everywhere. Most of the states had record turnouts or close to it for an off-year election for a, a midterm election as this was. And um, by the way, the the uh, evidence appears to be that the voting public, despite the fact that President Biden in his uh, statement at the White House where he's answering some questions, uh, actually made the point that this was a very young electorate that turned out. That's not what the exit polls show. And um, it wouldn't be the first mistake President Biden has made, but the exit po polls show that this uh, electorate skewed a little bit older and uh, that people came out for it on that level, that they cared deeply about the issue of inflation and the economy and crime and, yes, abortion. Uh, we should note that uh, the, the idea of a right to abortion was popular in uh, those states, and there were four of them where it was on the ballot. Uh, we will be getting to that. Right now we have the pleasure of speaking to David French, who is a senior editor at The Dispatch, which has really terrific election coverage. I mean, i got to compliment you on that, David. And a contributing uh, writer for The Atlantic and uh, an Iraq War vet and a veteran of... Uh, all kinds of legal fights on behalf of uh, religious liberty. Uh, David, have you uh, recovered from uh, what must have been a very long night? Um, I'm recovering, but it's, you know, it's a long night and it's also a long day because the control of both the House and the Senate is still up for grabs. It's pretty remarkable that we're at this position at, you know, five o'clock in the afternoon Eastern time the day after the election. Yeah, I think they they say NBC and the New York Times appear to agree that right now there are uh, the House seats are settled except for 10 of them. And I think they're they're already allocating uh, 200 and uh, uh, 22 House seats for Republicans. So already handing over. Uh, a majority to Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, that's. I think that's at this point what you would call uh, nearly certain, not completely certain, but nearly certain. Uh, whereas the Senate, it may may come down to uh, the Georgia runoff, um, it, which again, <laughs> right, may come down, which which is a, a sad sense of deja vu here. But in order for it to come down to the Georgia runoff, and I've tried to figure this out, and again, it is complicated, but I'm pretty sure of this. If uh, the Georgia runoff doesn't make any difference, unless the Republicans win both uh, Arizona and uh, the Senate seat in Arizona that Blake Masters is running for, and uh, Nevada. Because otherwise... Right, right. Well, if they win Arizona or Nevada, 
then in the and if they take uh, if they take uh, Georgia, they'll have the Senate. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But the point being that it it, 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 it if they lose, for instance, uh, in Arizona, and, and it appears that they are, they would just be back to the fifty fifty split if they won Georgia. Because right, everybody's right. at forty eight right now, and <laughs> it's just, <laughs> and, uh, and these are uh, these are uh, democratic seats that they would be taking in Arizona and Nevada. So, um, and, and then they have Alaska, where they have the ranked voting, where a Republican is going to win, but we won't know whether it's Kelly Chewbacca or Lisa Murkowski, apparently until November 23rd when they do the ranked voting kicking in. Right, exactly, exactly. So this is this is not election night anymore. You've got election weeks in, as far as learning the, learning the outcomes of some of these races, which is its own problem, quite frankly. I mean, I think there, there's a real there are real concerns about it taking a very, very long time to count votes. Now, Alaska is a little different because votes come in from uh, pretty remote places. And, uh, you know, Alaska will set aside. But in the rest of the United States, the idea that we are still pretty far from counting all the votes in a number of key states is a little bit troubling. Uh, yeah, you would you would think that they could could get this uh, straight. Now, you have a, a, a challenging column and. Um, it, it goes to the point that every single election you hear the same thing. This is the most yeah. important election of our lifetime. This is the most important election in American history. If we lose this election, we lose our republic. Uh, which, what you're saying is this might be remembered as the least important election of our history or of our lifetime. <laughs> uh, explain right. why. Well, as a very, in a very real way... Uh, if you if you actually drill down and you think hard about what are the consequences in the real world of the election, in the real world, not in the sense of, well, so-and-so who supports policies I don't like uh, has won, but what can they do with the power that they have, the chances that this election was going to really fundamentally transform political power in the United States were – virtually nil, uh, almost none. And and I only say virtually or almost because there were a couple of ways in which had things broken dramatically in one direction where you might have had some really truly historical consequences to the election. But as it looks now, even if the Democrats narrowly retain control of the Senate and the, and the Republicans narrowly take the House, not only is that not truly consequential for the exercise of power in the United States of America, it's not really truly consequential except as a surprising aberration from the normal midterm patterns um, in the context of, of midterm elections. And so one of the things that I was trying to get people to do in my piece was to literally sit down and think hard about what are the actual ways in which this election outcome would influence the exercise of power in the U.S. And the fact of the matter is, with Congress being the least powerful branch of government, and by the way, that's not the founders' intent, <laughs> but that's the way it's developed, the least powerful branch of government, paralyzed by partisan infighting, changes of congressional control, 
tend not to be world historic or even nationally historic events in the way that they used to be. So I was trying to introduce a bit of perspective. Well, again, I, I, you have Republican candidates. We had a candidate here in the state of Washington who appears to have lost a Republican seat, uh, who said that his three priorities were going to be when he came to Congress, uh, obstruction, investigation, and impeachment uh, of Joe Biden. Uh, right. Good, good agenda for Republicans? <laughs> Terrible agenda for Republicans. But it was the agenda that a lot of Republicans in the base wanted. I mean, they wanted investigations and impeachment. And as I put it in the piece, if you're looking for serious statesmen to try to work through problems of crime and inflation and inflation, immigration and the border, um, you'd come to the wrong place because I weren't I'm not seeing a lot of serious statesmen on either side of the aisle. But if you are really, really looking forward to learning more about Hunter Biden, well, then you should be cheering Republican control of the House because you're going to get what you want. You're going to get to know a lot more about Hunter Biden. Not sure what that is going to have much to do when it comes to actually governing this way out of some profound American challenges. But the sad thing is, is that the, the Republican infotainment world demands these kinds of actions. David French, uh, his outstanding uh, piece about this election and the right context in which to place it, is posted on our website at michaelmedved.com. Godspeed to you, David, and thank you for joining us. When we come back, we'll answer a surprise. The Michael Medved Show. And on the uh, Michael Medved Show, I was mentioned before a riddle, an enigma, or is it a riddle wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a mystery, as Churchill said about the government of Russia uh, years ago. Uh, it, it is one of the surprising aspects, and it's a question that is begging for answers. And if you want to try to answer it, I, I want to learn from you because it's one of those things that I think is almost impossible to figure out definitively because it is so profoundly illogical is with this election, uh, it, it was groundbreaking and shattering a pattern and doing that in a context where no one expected it. I, I spoke to a very intelligent guy, a terrific analyst yesterday, and um, Henry Olson. Uh, he's a Washington Post columnist. He's a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And uh, I asked him, uh, they had just come out with a... Um, uh, an analysis from betting sites that said that 70% odds that the Democrats would would actually uh, lose control of the Senate. And that looks almost impossible to happen. It looks like very, very much a long shot. The, the best Republicans can hope for Right now, it seems, is that they, they hold on to the same 50-50 Senate split. And that's after the, uh, the runoff in Georgia. Okay, the, the other thing, what I asked 
uh, Henry about is I said, okay, uh, what do you think the odds are? They say that officially the odds are 94 percent that the Republicans take the House. He said, no, it's a done deal. That's 100 percent. I said, be careful. You said things in politics are never 100 percent. And he said, no, no, it's 100 percent. Okay. It turns out, yes, the Republicans are going to take the House, but just barely. And basically, when you put this particular election in context and you look at the $17 billion that was spent on it and the ferocious fights and primaries and within parties and against the other party and the deluge of $17 billion of mostly negative ads, with all of this going on, how could it be that this was so much better a race for the incumbent president than it usually is for the midterms? Does Biden deserve a, uh, uh, a, a good result? No, I don't think so. And, and the polling about Biden is appalling. He has a lower rating than any other recent president going into the midterm election. In other words, with more people lopsidedly disapproving of his leadership. His, uh, his leadership even sank down to the high 30s at one point uh, before, uh, before this election. It came back up a little bit to the low 40s. But it's appallingly low. And three-quarters of the people think the country's headed in the wrong direction. So in the midst of that, why is it that Biden may end up losing his party, 10 seats in the House, and actually gaining seats in the Senate? Maybe one, maybe two. It depends on Arizona and Nevada. Uh, and what happens in the runoff in Georgia. So why should Biden do better then Trump, for instance, Trump in his midterm election, he lost 43 seats in the House. That was more than average. The average is 29 seats for the last 100 years. Why should he do so much better than Obama? Obama ended up winning re-election with a pretty convincing margin. But Obama, and one of the reasons that I was convinced that Obama couldn't win, I did a, uh, an audio book. Uh, called The Odds Against Obama, which is a collector's item because Obama won that election and he won that election uh, against Mitt Romney, I think a far superior leader and a much better candidate for the presidency. But, okay, Obama lost 63 seats. 63 seats. It's like 10 times, <clears throat> uh, pardon me, like six times the number of seats that that Biden is likely to lose. And uh, and then if you go back to Bill Clinton, he lost 55 seats. So why did Biden get away with um, with the appalling economic news, the uh, terrible inflation, which affects the way people live? Uh, problems with our schools being shut down. And you can say, well, it wasn't Joe Biden who shut down the schools. It was governors uh, and and local officials and actually part of it at the beginning of the Trump administration. But the point being 
that given how upset the country is, how negative the country is, how bad it feels out there when you see the graffiti everywhere and the uh, homeless encampments everywhere all across the country, why does uh, did so few people vote for really dramatic change? And that's the message of the election. And I think it's a warning for us going forward is that if, if you're going to, to truly do dramatic change, you have to talk about it. And you have to talk about the kind of change you want to make and maybe even inspire people about it a little bit. Otherwise, you just have basically uh, what, what Biden actually talked about. You have a, a choice, not a referendum. This should have been, as most midterm elections are, a referendum. Do you like the way the country is headed or do you dislike it? Do you think there should be a change in some direction or another or not a change? The problem was there was so much focus, as much focus as there was on Biden, there was focus on President Trump and some of the excesses of the MAGA base and the desire to talk about uh, January 6th and the Stop the Steal movement and the whole idea of a rigged election and a stolen election and Trump's character and Trump's personality and Trump's return. In other words, I believe that one of the reasons the Democrats did better than anyone expected is because it's it's always easier to get people to vote against something than to get them to vote for it. And uh, what the our Democrats were able to do was to say, well, you may be against us, but how about those guys? They're really, really bad. They are dangerous. They want to end American democracy. Did most voters believe that? No. But it's part of what they dislike about the direction of the country. We need, I hope, two fresh candidates for president because a repeat of Trump versus Biden uh, for three more years or more, really, uh, we will be right back on the Medved Show. Michael Medved. I'm listening to everything you say. Most of the people who lost uh, their races uh, last night, and, and by the way, having worked in politics for some years when I was young and foolish, uh, it, it can be just a, a crushing, soul-smashing experience to work in a campaign, to be confident you are going to win, to give it your all, to spend sleepless hours and disrupt relationships and you're all working, working, working. And then <clears throat> on election night, it's not close. And uh, uh, that's uh, one of the contexts in which Stacey Abrams, who, as I mentioned before, was fairly gracious in her commentary when she was conceding her loss to the fine governor of Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp, Republican. She... Um, she couldn't resist uh, comparing her electoral loss to the sufferings of St. Paul in the New Testament while she quoted some scripture. This is clip 10. 
I am too reminded of what scripture tells us. Second yes, yes. Corinthians 4, 8 says this. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. I know the results are what we hope for tonight. And I understand that you are hurting and you are disappointed. I am too. We may not have made it to the finish line, but we ran that race. And we know this path. And we know that running is what matters. That standing is what matters. That defending is what matters. Okay. Uh, emotional, yes. Uh, comparing herself to Christian martyrs in, in, in Scripture. Uh, maybe reaching a little bit too far. And uh, I, again, to say that she has been persecuted, I mean, Paul was persecuted unto death, for goodness sake. And uh, she, she's a very well-known, successful author of romance novels and uh, obviously has a great career in politics and media. So the level of persecution that Stacey Abrams has suffered seems to me pretty shallow. It's like the red wave that turned into a, as they say, a, a pink puddle. Um, well, pink only because it was partially Republican. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Kevin McCarthy spoke late last night and uh, predicted and correctly, accurately, that despite falling far short of what he had predicted before when he talked originally, initially about winning 60 seats, uh, they're not going to come close to that in any way. He uh, said this, clip 11. Now let me tell you, you're out late, but when you wake up tomorrow, we will be in the majority and Nancy Pelosi will be in the minority. Yeah! The American people are ready for a majority that will offer a new direction, that will put America back on track. Republicans are ready to deliver it. Okay, uh, and let's hope that that comes to fruition for the sake of the country and for the sake of the Republican Party. Ted Cruz conceded last night that it wasn't quite the big wave he had expected. Clip five. It hasn't been as big of a wave as I'd hoped it would be. Uh, we've had some close races go the other way so far. I think we're still on a path for a sizable majority in the House, and I think we're still on a path for a majority in the Senate. I think we're probably at 52 or 53 Republicans right now. I'd hoped we'd be as high as 54. We're not going to get there in all likelihood. Okay, they're not going to get to 52 or 53 either, as it turns out. Uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, another colleague and friend of Ted Cruz from the Republican uh, half of the Senate, uh, was on NBC, 5.5. Definitely not a Republican wave, that's for darn sure. I was in charge of Guam, so I want to take credit for that. Congratulations. Yeah, they won Guam, which I thought was big. Yeah, 1993 is last time we were in Guam. Guam, I think, you know, I think we're going to be at 51, 52 when it's all said and done in the Senate. 
Uh, 51 possibly if they win all of the three outstanding seats. If they win Nevada and Arizona and, uh, and the runoff in Georgia. Uh, Tiffany Smiley was our candidate here. And for a while, it looked like she could actually do the impossible and as a conservative Republican, win a statewide race in Washington. She's a wonderful candidate, wonderful person. Uh, This was her non-concession speech, uh, depending on how you look at it, uh, where she told her supporters to keep the faith. Tiffany Smiley, who lost by a considerable margin, a double-digit margin, to Senator Patty Murray. Listen. Keep fighting. Please keep fighting. Um, (laughs) We knew this road would not be easy. I didn't get into this because it was going to be easy. I got into this knowing it would be a fight and that it would be really, really hard. So I'm not disappointed with anything that I'm seeing tonight because 50, over 50% of the vote is still out, folks. <laughs> so I, I'm not easily intimidated if you don't know that already. <laughs> and I always stand close to my convictions and I stand close to the fact that Washington State does not need seniority. We need motivation and principle. And our family will never stop fighting for that. So thank you to each and every one of you from the bottom of our family's heart. This is, this is remarkable. I love this state. Thank you. Thank you. I love you guys. I love you. Uh, Tiffany Smiley, who won the silver medal. She finished second in the two-person race, alas. And uh, uh, then there was uh, President Trump. Um, Basically, this is before the votes started coming in and before he knew anything about the results. And he was still predicting uh, glorious Republican victories for many of the candidates that he had handpicked uh, and persuaded to run. It was his idea for Herschel Walker to run for the U.S. Senate, not Herschel's own idea. Uh, And Mr. Walker very proudly acknowledges that. President Trump said this about the likely outcome of the elections. Clip three. The results for Republicans, um, how much of that will be because of Donald Trump? Well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit. And if they lose, I should not be blamed at all, okay? But it'll probably be just the opposite. Uh, When they win, I think they're going to do very well. I'll probably be given very little credit, even though in many cases I told people to run. And they ran, and they turned out to be very good candidates. You know, they turned out to be very good candidates. Uh, but usually what would happen is uh, when they do well, I won't be given any credit. And if they do badly, they will blame everything on me. So I'm prepared for anything, but we'll defend ourselves. You know, once upon a time, we used to talk on the show a lot about the phrase, I am not a victim. It's kind of hard to do it in the Trump era where people on every side, yes, including the former president, uh, see themselves as a uh, victim. I I do think that uh, President Trump uh, coming back with a series of rallies at the very end of the uh, cycle uh, and taking up so much of the attention and energy and focus as he does um, contributed to 
a result that uh, let the Biden administration off with a uh, minimal loss compared to its predecessors. We will be right back. How did Chris Christie react? We'll talk about it. Michael Medved show. Chris Christie is one of those people who is widely believed to be harboring presidential ambitions. When? In 2024. So with all of the talk about President Trump announcing his candidacy, which he is supposed to do on the 15th of this month, uh, just six days from today, uh, the uh, Chris Christie is naturally asked about it. He was talking about Chris Sununu, who is the very popular, very successful governor of New Hampshire. He won his third term last night. It got very little attention because even though New Hampshire is a swing state, uh, he always wins by tremendous margins there. And um, so uh, Chris Sununu uh, won a big re-election victory that almost nobody paid attention to. A lot of people had wanted him to run for the Senate, where he would have almost surely won instead of uh, it going to one of those uh, would-be loser candidates who the Democrats supported. And this is, again, something that President Biden didn't mention that very few people mentioned. But many of the big losers uh, who lost their races because they were perceived as being too radical were people the Democrats handpicked as their defeatable opponents. People like General Don Bolduc, who was the defeated candidate in New Hampshire, who never had a chance. And yes, they promoted him in the New Hampshire primary uh, with over much more viable candidates. In any event, uh, he was um, asked about the impact of Trump announcing his candidacy sometime soon. And the two-term governor of New Jersey had this to say. Listen. This idea that somehow, you know, Donald Trump is going to drive a whole bunch of people out of the race if he announces next week is just silliness, in my view, because anybody who wants to be president, if, you, if you're going to not get in because someone else announced then you probably don't have what it takes to be president to begin with. So I think Chris is doing the right thing. He just won. He's not going to answer your question because he probably hasn't even talked to his wife about it yet, let alone talk to the people in New Hampshire who just sent them back. And, you know, we talked earlier about, um, about Trump and what would happen tonight if some of the candidates he endorsed won and some of them lost. And, and I said to you, I predicted to you that he would take all the credit if they won and none of the blame if they lost. Here is his quote on TV tonight about tonight's results. Well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit. If they lose, I should not be blamed at all. Uh, all right. Governor so I don't know. I think I know the guy. <laughs> uh, that's uh, Governor Chris Christie, who is widely expected to be trying another presidential uh, adventure of his own. Uh, there's another adventure that, that ends up with a much happier ending than I ever thought. And because um, Alan Dershowitz is a frequent 
guest on this show, and he's actually become something of a personal friend. Um, and I think he's a remarkable mind, even when I disagree with him on stuff, and I do all the time. But uh, the headline in the New York Times this morning, and this has nothing to do with the election, but it's fascinating. He said, the headline, Epstein victims says she may have made a mistake in accusing Dershowitz. This was one of the worst things that had ever happened in Allen's, what is it, 84 years of life. He had been uh, accused, and it turns out, just as he said, always defending himself, saying the charges against him were groundless. Well, apparently they are. Uh, Virginia Joffrey, a victim of Jeffrey Epstein, who for years maintained that the law professor Alan Dershowitz had sexually assaulted her when she was a teenager, settled a defamation lawsuit against Mr. Dershowitz on Tuesday, Election Day, and said that uh, she might have made a mistake, in quotes, in accusing him. A mistake that poisons someone's whole life? How appalling this is. In a joint statement announcing the settlement, uh, Ms. Joffrey said, I have long believed that I was trafficked by Jeffrey Epstein to Alan Dershowitz. However, I was very young at the time. It was a very stressed out and traumatic environment. And Mr. Dershowitz has, from the beginning, consistently denied these allegations. I now recognize that I may have made a mistake in identifying Mr. Dershowitz, her statement said. The joint statement announced the end of litigation between Ms. Joffrey and Mr. Dershowitz, who said that also sued her, as well as uh, two other lawsuits between Mr. Dershowitz and uh, the lawyer David Boys uh, that stemmed from Ms. Joffrey's accusation. Uh, it is a good thing when a good man, and I think a patriot who loves the country, uh, even when he's wrong, uh, is, is cleared of a truly hideous uh, accusations. And, okay, Prince Andrew, uh, that's one thing. There's evidence of that. Uh, the entire case, and I've read a good deal about it, always seemed to be uh, just a, a nasty and groundless smear against uh, Dershowitz. Uh, meanwhile, there is a, a movie that's out there that's getting a great deal of praise and attention with an interesting cast. There's a bit part in the movie for Jessica Chastain. Anne Hathaway plays a mother. Anthony Hopkins is generating Oscar contention. The movie takes place in Queens, New York, near Donald Trump's neighborhood where he grew up. In 1980, the time of the Reagan election, it's called Armageddon Time. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. Writer-director James Gray delivers a haunting, frankly autobiographical film about growing up in a middle-class Queens, New York family back in 1980, where the main character gets some meaningful advice from his father, played by Jeremy Strong, in Armageddon Time, now playing in theaters. You just wanted to be like you. I want you to be a whole lot better than me. Life is unfair. Be thankful when you get a leg up. You're going to be a mensch, okay? 
That's the voice of Anthony Hopkins, who gives the film's best performance as the immigrant grandfather, who's the only fully likable character in the midst of this flawed and sometimes troubled family. There's a haunting tone intensified by an often intrusive and ineffective musical score, but not much in the way of uplift or inspiration. Rated R entirely for harsh language. Two and a half stars for the skillful and occasionally compelling Armageddon time. And uh, coming up this week, we have a, a just a remarkable film that I saw last night that I will tell you in advance is one of the best movies of the year. It is a film for people who are fascinated by naval aviation. If you loved the Maverick Top Gun film, and many, many people did one of the top grossing movies of all time, you're going to love Devotion, which is uh, about with unbelievable scenes of aerial combat but also of human relationships. Uh, what a movie coming up. Uh, okay, what else is coming up is... <laughs> you know, uh, democracy may not have been on the ballot, but slavery was in five different states. And in some of those states, the bid to outlaw slavery was rejected. Why? Uh, not because people favored slavery, because what they call slavery is uh, taking prisoners and expecting them to work to help earn funds for keeping them healthy and well while they do their time. So why was it rejected in some states and not in others? We will get to that. There's also a brand new poll that shows that uh, Gen Z and millennials are rejecting both parties in growing numbers, talking about, yearning for some third party, and they actually believe that the Democratic Party is much too extreme and the Republican Party is much too extreme. So what do you do about that? Uh, we will be talking about that. We'll also be talking to... Uh, Rich Lowry, the um, uh, the author of a new book, uh, Rich Lowry, the editor of National Review, uh, called Move Over Gettysburg Address, and I Have a Dream. Uh, we will get to that and to much more uh, next time as we're still waiting for the final word on the states of Arizona and, uh, and uh, of... Uh, Nevada and uh, even Alaska, where there should be some clear indications of who the next senator, uh, our senators will be for this greatest nation on God's green earth.